Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Maybe you're waiting for me to tell you, yes, we are ready to go. So, uh, nice to be back again. And uh, it's time to revisit Second Timothy. So, if you could take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's been a wee while since we tried to progress this chapter. We spent a lot of time in chapter 1, 2 and 3 and we got into chapter 4 and then COVID comes along and throws everything up in the air and I just thought, well, maybe it's time just to push it a wee bit further along. And uh, in chapter 4, um, the picture is the Apostle Paul sitting in a prison cell. And he's coming to the end of his life. He knows that uh, the clock is coming to midnight. And the bell will ring as it were. And it's all over and he's gone. And he's just sitting there looking back in his life. At the kind of life he's lived and all the blessings and, and he's trying to help us to understand by little metaphors. He says here in chapter 4 and verse 7. He's looking back and he says this. I have fought a good fight. He's looking back in his life and he says it's been a big fight. I've had the boxing gloves on, I've been in the ring, I've been fighting the fight. He says it was a good one. And I suppose he's just painting this picture that the Christian life is like being in the ring. And we're fighting the fight. In chapter 2 he talks about a good soldier. Here he talks about a good fight. And every believer is a soldier, supposedly a good soldier, who endures the hardships who doesn't allow himself to be entangled in the affairs of civilian life. And then he engages himself in a good fight. So we're going to think about this fight. Who is it we're fighting against? If I'm in the ring, if I've got the gloves on, who's in the ring with me? Who's there trying to knock me out? And who's there trying to jab me and punch me and, and, and hurt me? So let's consider that for a wee while this morning. So first of all, I want to return to the book of Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. And go down to verse 8. Now, it's two sisters. We've looked at this lot wee time in the past. Uh, Rachel and Leah. And they grew up together. Uh, They married the same man. And they find themselves in the ring together. And they see each other as opponents. As the enemy. To cut the long story short, I'm simply saying, your brother, your sister in the Lord is not your enemy. Look what it says in verse 8. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings 
have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed, and she called his name Nephthali, with the birth of a child. So the struggle was, uh, who's going to bear more children for the husband? And eventually Rachel says, I've born a child, i prevailed against my sister, I'm the champion, I've defeated her, she's on the canvas, I've won the fight. And the word wrestling there, it's a tortuous struggle. There wasn't any joy in it. There was no fun in it. This relationship you had, that she had with her sister, all from childhood right to adulthood, it was one of constant, I'll hurt her, she'll hurt me, I'm jealous, I'm envious. This torturous struggle that went right into adulthood. If you go into the previous chapter, you might get a wee bit of a feel as to where it all came from. Chapter 9, uh, chapter 29, and verse 16 says, And Laban, that's the father of the two girls, had two daughters. Uh, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Then it says this, Leah, the oldest girl, she was tender-eyed. She didn't have the best of eyesight. She maybe tripped and stumbled and Back in those days, they didn't have contact lenses, laser surgery, glasses. She was what she was. And then it says, but Rachel was beautiful and well favored. So one girl's rather plain and uh, bad eyesight. The other girl's beautiful, a lovely shaped body, had a well favored in so many ways. And of course, when you get that distinction, there's room there for jealousy, there's room for envy, there's room for pride, and all that festering in the relationship. It didn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, when you look back in your life, and you can't look back and say, well, nobody ever hurt me. Life being as it is, living in a broken world as it is, Somebody out there, somewhere down the line, has hurt you, and sometimes it really didn't matter. Sometimes it was a real hurt, and you really felt it. We all know what it is to be hurt by others. Back in my school days, uh, many a fellow on the other team would trip you up, would kick you in the, the shins. He would hurt you. But when I look back on it all, Nobody ever hurt me more than my big brother, Ronnie. Boy, did he hurt me. But I give as good as I got. And uh, we slept in the same bed together. And I told you before the story, and he supported Liverpool, and I supported Manchester United. So there's plenty of room for argument there about who was the best team and, and uh, lying in the same bed together. On the night when they played the game and one beat the other, uh, the argument break out and descends into a nipping war. The nip was a great weapon of warfare. And that backside of mine was nipped many a time. And his backside was nipped many a time by me. 
And sometimes you didn't need any reason to nip each other's backside. That's just, let's just nip each other. Sometimes you draw this imaginary line down the middle of the bed and say, you keep your backside over there. Don't you trans- transgress the boundary? And then sometimes you're a sheer badness. You just stick your backside over the line. And the nip is a great way to drive back the backside, the other side of the boundary. So nobody ever hurt me more than my big brother Ronnie. I remember when he was uh, 17 and he passed his driving test. And of course for Ronnie, the car was just to drive around the town and drive with one hand and show off to the girls how cool he was. But my daddy owned the car. Oh no, no. You don't use the car for stupid vain reasons like that. You drive the car on purpose to go somewhere to do something that's important. You don't show off driving around the town to the girls. So the car wasn't for that reason. I remember this Friday night and my dad was in his bed and Ronnie was out in the town as it were. And I thought I heard something out the front. I drew the curtains and, and there was my brother Ronnie stealing the car. Back in those days you didn't have security like there is today. You get an old steel comb and get the corner of it, and that would unlock the door. The same thing to get the engine going. But Ronnie didn't want to start the engine at the house because my dad might hear it and catch him. So he had the door opened, and he was pushing the car down to the end of the street. And then he hops in, turns the ignition, and away he goes to drive around the town with one hand to show off to the girls. And I saw this, and I thought my revenge is going to be sweet. I'm going to tell my dad, and he'll be banned from driving the car for six months or a year. I'll really hurt him. This'll be a punch to knock him out. This'll be like a thousand nips in one go. But you see, when the time came, and the next day my dad was there, and Ronnie was there. My dad had no idea when, what went on during the night, and but I knew, and. Uh, the, the, the lips were almost ready to move, but the way in her voice was saying, you know, if you tell your dad and your brother it's going to be a big trouble for your brother, do you really want to do this? And at the end of the day, I thought to myself, I don't want to do it to him. Because as much as he hurt my backside all those years and, and many, many a time, I really don't want to get him into big, big trouble because at the end of the day, he's my brother. And whenever he died and we carried the coffin down the hill past the street where we lived and where he pushed the car uh, that night so many years ago, I remember thinking about that experience and sort of tapping the coffin saying, Ronnie, I kept it a secret. And I'm glad I did. He's my brother. And you can't belong to a fellowship of believers where you're not going to be hurt by your brother or your sister. Somebody's going to say something. Somebody's going to do something. They'll step on your toe from time to time. They'll get under your skin. They'll drive you crazy. But at the end of the day, always remember, never forget your brother and your sister. You're born together in Christ. Yes, life being as it is will hurt each other. 
these two girls because of jealousy and pride. Got them engaged in a silly competition over a man, which is all the more crazy when you think about it. That right, girls. And they ended up in a torturous struggle. The waste of time and energy and emotion. For what? When they could have grown up together, setting aside the render and their jealousy, and be sisters together and enjoy each other and be a blessing to each other, enrich each other's lives together. But they denied themselves that. Because they allowed themselves by their jealousy and by their pride to drive themselves into a conflict that was tortuous to both of them. A tortuous struggle with your brother and your sister in the Lord. Will you turn to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll get it right eventually. And go down to uh, verse 8. Our brother and our sister is not in the ring with us. Shouldn't be. We're not there to hurt each other. Uh, Don't engage in torturous struggle. Our brother or sister is not the enemy. But here is one that is. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, be sober. Now that's not saying, uh, make sure you're not drunk with alcohol, like you're, you're sober. That, it's just simply saying, don't be reckless. Don't just jump to wrong conclusions and, and uh, dive in at the deep and jump on with both feet and all that. Just be, be very, very careful as you go through the Christian life. Don't be reckless, don't be rash, don't be idiotic. Be sober and be vigilant. Have your eyes open. Why? There's dangers out there. Big dangers for this child of God, the saint of God. So as we make our way, our way through the Christian life, just be careful as you go. Keep your eyes open, be sober and vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. He's painting pictures we can understand. It's life's like a jungle. And uh, there's things in the jungle that don't like you. And uh, they would devour you. And, and one is a lion. And the lion here is a devil. And he's an adversary. He stands against you. He wants to hurt you. He wants to bring you down. He wants to destroy you. That's why you don't be reckless. Be vigilant. Have your eyes open. You're in a jungle. There's a lion there, an adversary, and he wants to hurt you. That's your enemy. That's your enemy. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, you like to turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Now, uh, this wee verse that just adds a wee bit to the roaring lion. Here's what it says about the roaring lion. 
verse 11. Put on the whole army of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Oh, you've got to keep your eye on that lion. He's crafty. He's crafty. He's got a good nose in his, in his face that he can sniff you out. And he's got a roar that scared the life out of you. And he's coming for you. He wants to destroy you. And you need to be understanding of his wiles. His strategies. His deceit. His manipulation. And his all to bring you down. We'll go to a familiar story that just reveals this. Matthew's Gospel chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel chapter 16. Peter was not a wise disciple. Uh, he was not sober, he was not vigilant. He jumped under the two feet, wore the hognail boots. Just a rash, and that was Peter. But I've a lot of sympathy for him. I, I'm not very condemning of him, because so many of us are like him. And in Matthew 16, and verse 16 it says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter just jumps in there and he, before any other disciple. He says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're not just the son of a son of a, a carpenter. You're not just a prophet, a priest, and a king. You're the Son of God. A deity inhabits you. You're God in flesh. He got it. Now, look what it says. In verse 21, and from that time forth began Jesus to show unto the disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things to the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus says, Peter and the rest of you, you now know who I am. You need to know why I'm here. So we're going to head off to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, eventually I will be arrested. And they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. The Son of God. God himself. Taken by wicked men. And physically killed. So the disciples got the message as to why Jesus was here, the purpose of his coming. But what was Peter's reaction to that? He's jumping under the hognail boots. Look what it goes on to say. Uh, verse uh, 22, Then Peter took the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, God manifest in flesh, and he began to rebuke him. The insolence of it. He's got a finger. Stuck under the nose of the Lord Jesus. And he says, get the silly idea out of your head. We'll not stand for it. That you're going to go to Jerusalem and allow those soldiers to kneel to a cross. It can't happen. We'll, we'll block it from happening. It must not happen. What does Jesus say to that? This may be a bit of a shock. The language is quite severe. Verse 24. Uh, sorry. Uh, verse 23 and he turned and he said unto Peter get thee behind me Satan for thou art an offence to me 
who says, Peter, you may not see the whole picture here. There's a while of the devil taking place here. There's deceit, there's manipulation. And Peter, in your sincerity, but in your ignorance, you're part of it. The devil's using you to frustrate the purposes of God in this world for the salvation of the lost. See, the word offense means a trap stick. When we were kids, we used to catch wee birds. We took the fire guard from the fireplace and propped it up with a stick and tied a string to the bottom of the stick and put some wee breadcrumbs underneath the, the, the fire guard and unraveled the string into the house through a window and waited for the wee birds to see the bread and they would land and in the goody that the bread and we would pull the trap stick away and down comes the fire guard, the wee bird is caught. See, the devil had a trap. The last thing Satan wanted was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. How to stop that. And if he could only use a disciple, a sincere disciple, but ignorant. A man that doesn't have the understanding and the insight and the knowledge, even though Jesus gave him the insight and the knowledge. He still didn't get it. And Satan used Peter as a trap stick, as part of the wee trap to stop Jesus from dying upon the cross. It sometimes can be a wee bit scary, that. Could I, in all sincerity, say something, do something that could be there to hinder God's blessing and purpose in the lives of others? We just need to be careful as we go, sober, vigilant, because Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour the believer. It says he's a roaring lion. Oh, the devil's not sitting in a wee corner asleep and just letting you believers get on with your Christian life and live for God and serve the Lord. No, no, he's active, he's awake, and he's roaring. You hear his voice. You know, the voice of Satan has a speciality. He specializes in accusation. He specializes in accusation. Look at Job. So there's this dear man, Job, introduced, an upright man, a man that eschews evil in the world around him and so on. And, and uh, Satan, for some reason, has access to the presence of God. And, and God says to the devil, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been down in the earth. And I came across a servant of yours by the name of Job. And yes, he says he loves you, he carries his Bible. He never stops praying and so on. But then he makes an accusation. He says, God, all that love and loyalty is all conditioned. It's conditional. It's all because and tied in to your blessings in his life. See, that's the reason why you love him. Look at his business. It's just growing exponentially. It's fantastic business. Look at his family. Wonderful family. Look at the man's physical strength. Uh, 
and stamina. He never has more than a cold or a flu and a strong man. Sure, you bless the man's life. But he says, take some of that away from him. Then you'll see the real Job. He'll curse you to your face. He'll shake his fist at you. He made that accusation. He says, his love for you is all conditional. Will he make that charge against you this morning? He says, the love you have for God is because God has done nothing other than poor blessings into your life. Your business is running well. Your, your, your family life is fantastic. Your health, nothing more than a cold or a flu. And you've been blessed by God. So you have every reason to love the Lord. But what if God says, No, I'm going to take the wall that protects and brings the blessings. And I'm going to let them go through some hardship. I let their health be destroyed. I let their business go bankrupt. I will let them lose a child. Would you still come around these emblems? Would you still stand before the Lord and say, Lord, even with a broken heart, I love you. See, the devil is very good at accusations. Points a finger, says, your love was only conditional. If God took the most precious asset out of your life. You'd be like Job's wife. You'd become embittered by it and angered by it and you'd never come to the breaking of bread. You'd never lift his name in praise. You'd hate him for the rest of your life. So what, uh, what is the state of the true love in your heart for God? Is it related to the cross, to who he is? Or is it all fairly conditional? Lord, I'll keep coming, I'll keep praying, I'll keep reading the word of God, I'll keep living for you, so long as the blessings continue. Touch the blessings and replace the blessings with pain and agony. Then it's a different story. Job, his love for God was true. Will you turn to Revelation chapter 12? Revelation chapter 12. And of course, when you get into the book of Revelation, uh, we're spending a lot of our time in God's heaven. And in chapter 12, uh, the rapture's taken place already. Uh, the believers are in heaven. And this would sort of fit in in the first three years of the tribulation period. That's my sort of feel for it. And it says in chapter 12 and verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And then it describes a woman that is basically Israel. And then it says in verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great dragon. And that's uh, Satan, that's the devil. Look at verse 7. And there was war in the heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with the angels, and prevailed not, neither was there found place any more in heaven. So you just get the impression here that Satan still has some sort of access into the presence of God. But after the rapture, 
And before the great tribulation, there's going to be a bit of conflict in heaven. There's going to be a big fight. And God's going to take the devil by the scruff of the neck and he's going to throw him out. He's going to get dumped. Uh, Go down to verse uh, 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. Well, if the devil's in heaven today, still excess, he probably spends a wee bit of time talking to God about me. And from time to time, he probably talks to God a wee bit about you, Tom, and Daphne, and Liam, and every one of you that knows the Lord. And they have a big list. And they'll say, God, do you see that? You'll funny that preacher down there on the platform. Let me tell you what he's really like. And the devil doesn't have to lie about me. He doesn't have to exaggerate my sins. No, he says, God, let me. And God, you should know this yourself anyway. That fellow down there is a hypocrite. He's, a, he's this, he's that. He's done this, he's said this, he's that. And what lies in his heart, the corruptor is there. And God would say, you don't have to tell me about him. I already know everything about him. And God knows all about me. I'm fighting the accusations of the devil and when he whispers in my ear and he says, you're just rotten to the core. You shouldn't be on that platform. You shouldn't be preaching the word of God. You're just an old sinner like everybody else. Look at all the sins of your life. And he's right about it. How do I overcome that? Well, look what it goes on to say. Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. You got that? See, when the devil comes alongside me, as he does on a daily basis, and says, you'll finally let me remind you who you really are. And I'll say to him, well, let me remind you what happened upon the cross for me. Jesus died for all those sins of my life. So you can accuse me for all you want. And if you want to exaggerate them, go ahead and multiply my sins as you like. I don't have my sins anymore. Jesus died for my sins. So I, I don't, I'm not scared by the rule of the lion. But he does scare some believers. And maybe you're here this morning as a believer. And you're not in, enjoying the assurance of your salvation. Because the devil rules at you. He accuses you. He reminds you of your sins and says with all those sins, are you really sure of heaven? Does God want a guy like you in heaven? Well, just you keep reminding the devil. Jesus on that cross, he shed his blood that my sins might be forgiven. They're all gone. They're gone. So the devil can stand in in God's court and accuse me for all he likes. God is not going to be convinced. God's already declared that my sins are gone. I've been forgiven. Maybe you hear this morning, and when the devil rules about your sins, uh, it's all legitimate because your sins have not yet been forgiven. 
The accusation stands. The condemnation is real. You have sinned against God. And you are condemned not just by the devil. You're condemned by God as well. But God doesn't want you to stay condemned. God wants to forgive you. He wants to take your sins away. He wants to lift the condemnation. And take your sins and cleanse them with the blood of the Lamb. So as a believer you're in a fight. But not with your brother and sister in the Lord. Yes, they'll hurt you. But never forget. Don't, don't get engaged in that struggle of torture. Your brother, your sister, love them. The bond is, is great. The devil's in the ring with you. He wants you to be careless and Going through Christian life with your eyes closed, not aware of the strategies of deceit and all that's around you. He wants to hurt you and bring you down and destroy you. He doesn't want you to enjoy the assurance of your salvation. He doesn't want you to enjoy the peace that comes when you know your sins are gone. Next week, we'll take it a wee bit further. But for now, let's close. We were a prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the devil couldn't hinder the work of the cross. As much as he tried, even using the innocent sincerity of Peter the disciple, the Lord Jesus eventually went to Jerusalem and he was nailed to a cross and there he died for the sins of the world. Father, we pray for any that might be in our meeting this morning in the We haven't yet entered into the blessings of the cross. We pray, our Father, their sins will be taken away even this very day. And that when the devil accuses them, there's nothing to be accused for. That their sins have been forgiven. Accept of our thanks as we offer it in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. God bless you.